Kia ora, I'm Emil Donovan, and today on The Detail, a nursing pay inequity that's fueling a rest home crisis that's holding up hospital waiting lists. We all know New Zealand needs more nurses, but even within nursing, a gap is opening up. We're not getting paid what we should be. We're not getting as paid as much as our DHB counterparts. So we just we just want fair pay. We want what we're owed. New Zealand's aged care providers are at crisis point. Rest homes are closing hundreds of their hospital beds because of a nursing shortage. Well, the Aged Care Association says that staff shortages in the sector have reached crisis point. Some workers doing shifts of up to 24 hours straight. The aged care sector is 20% short of nurses. It's forced the closure of some rest homes and the loss of 500 aged care beds in the last six months. And it's coming at a time when we need to be preparing for the future. Today we've got 83,000 people over 85 Mm. and in 2050 we'll have (laughs) 383,000 people over 85. Is that true? Yes, there's a lot more coming. An extra 300,000 people Uh over 85 within just over 30 years. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. The providers say they aren't getting enough help to recruit, either financially or using other levers. Nurses are flabbergasted. They are excluded from a new fast-track pathway for residency. So today on the programme, how the aged care sector is structured in New Zealand, what the advantages and vulnerabilities are, and what could help to arrest this decline. Andrew Bevan is a reporter at the National Business Review. He wrote a detailed piece about this topic in mid-July. I'd say a shortage of nurses is sort of the immediate issue caused by insufficient funding from central government and border closures and difficulty there. There's a massive difference in the wages paid by Te Whareura or Health New Zealand, which makes competing for staff really, really difficult. And the really concerning long-term impacts of that are on the ability to provide equitable care for elderly, particularly those from working-class backgrounds or in the regions. When you think of aged care, you sort of think of retirement villages, right? And they are insanely profitable companies. I mean, you've got Ryman and Somerset, the guys listed on the New Zealand Stock Exchange, posting results, you know, in the hundreds of millions of dollars annually. But before we get into all that, let's get a grip on what aged care actually is and who provides it. Warwick Dunn is the Deputy Chair of the New Zealand Aged Care Association and Chief Executive of the Masonic Villages Trust. Yeah, look, the reality is, sadly, as we age, our bodies and minds degenerate. Past generations used to have three generations living in a house, but uh, changing expectations, things like women working, household finances requiring two people to work, has meant that the state has recognised the need to have a specialised area of care for older people. And the reality is that the type of care that folk need, particularly towards the end of their life, really is not able to be provided by family members. Mm. Now, someone might be forgiven for thinking this is a branch of the health system, as a matter of fact, quite a considerable branch of the health system. So presumably the health system deals with all of this, you know, the public health system. That's not the case, though, is it? Who, Who does, by and large, provide aged care in New Zealand? Back in the 1960s, the government used to provide it through uh, district health boards, um, as they used to be known. But there was a realisation with the growing numbers that were forecast that they needed to have a better way of doing it. So they then uh, provided funding and stimulus to uh, largely initially charitable providers to actually set up specialised rest homes and, um, and hospitals. That initial growth of the sector 
uh, has taken off um, over the last decades. And you now have a very specialised um, aged care sector that exists um, in New Zealand. We provide across the sector about 40,000 beds, and that contrasts with the 12,000-odd beds that the DHBs have through which they provide um, higher level of care. It strikes me that this is a crucial point, that the, the provision of aged care in New Zealand is not executed by Health New Zealand. It is, for lack of a better word, sort of outsourced to rest homes or specialised aged care providers, which are their own entities. We like to think of ourselves as as a a very significant public-private partnership. Mm. If you look at the total number of beds that we've got, that roughly equates to about $6 billion worth of uh, investment to actually establish those beds. And Whilst we contract to the DHBs, we sit alongside them and need to work with them uh, in terms of what we're doing. There's also a lot of diversity among the owners and operators of these various care facilities. Some are owned by big, publicly listed companies like Ryman or Somerset. Some are privately owned for-profit ventures. Some are owned by charities and some by non-profits. But all of them are providing health care. So all of them do get a bit of money from the government. Providers go through a needs assessment to see if residents need rest home, hospital or dementia level care. And the money is allocated per day on that basis. You've got three main day rates. The highest is hospital level care. Uh, You then have dementia level care and then you have rest home level care. And apart from that variability, you've also got regional variability. So if you take, for example, um, a hospital-level care resident in Auckland, um, a provider would be funded XGST at the rate of $257 a day. And down in Gore, that same resident would attract funding from the DHB of $242 a day. At the rest home level, that variance is $160 a day in Auckland uh, down to $151 a day in Gore. What is that day rate actually paying for? It's not just a bid, right? No, and, and look, this, this is where uh, you need to understand. If you, if you, take, if you try to book a room in Wellington at the moment, um, a, a pretty modest sort of three-star place, you'd probably be paying $160 a day, and for that you get a room and, and frankly not much else. So if you come into residential care at rest home level care, there's that funding of $160. And what that has to cover is accommodation or, or lodging, as it's termed in the contract. So that covers the care bed, the room linen, the cleaning, uh, food, obviously, uh, meals, snacks during the day, nursing care, care assistance, all associated uh, capital equipment such as hoist, uh, mobility support equipment, uh, management of the home, all repairs and maintenance of the home, diversional therapy, therapists. I, look, I can go on and on and on. Mm. Uh, it is a huge range of outgoings that any provider has to find um, out of that $160 a day. And that's before you start seeing whether or not you have made a surplus that enables you to pay back the money that you've had to borrow to build the facility. And so, I mean, it's a straight up calculation there that the amount of funding doesn't cover all of the expenses associated with the bed. So how do aged care providers make the numbers work? Well, something has to give. And and what generally gives is uh, the repairs and maintenance to the homes. And I'm talking particularly here 
about the homes that have been in existence for maybe 40 or 50 years. So what you get caught with is rooms that are very small, uh, often rooms that don't have access, direct access to a toilet or a shower and a pretty tired facility. Different issue uh, where you may be a newly established operator and you've built alongside that uh, care home a retirement village mm. uh, and um, and they come with a completely different financial model, which does generate a surplus. And where a uh, operator has a village, most operators are using surpluses generated out of that village operation to support the care operations. This is really interesting because, I, you know, I suppose we're talking about the aged care sector as a sector, but the situations mm. of different aged care providers can be dramatically different, can't they? I mean, you, you talk there of retirement villages, for example, one that springs to mind, you know, Ryman Healthcare, um, which consistently generates, you know, nine-figure profits, over $100 million a year. The country's biggest retirement village operator, Ryman Healthcare, has posted a solid increase in its first-half profit. The company's net profit was $188 million, up 11% on a year ago. They are in a position where they can reinvest their money to cross-subsidise losing money on aged care healthcare provisions, whereas a non-profit or a charity that is running a specialised aged care facility is in a drastically different situation, aren't they? Yeah, and, and that's very neatly put. And and if you look across the 40,000 beds in the sector, 20% are still uh, in the hands of registered charities. 34% are in the hands of the publicly uh, owned operators, so the, the likes of, of um, Ryman, as you just mentioned, um, and 46% are privately owned. Mm. And, and those privately owned facilities typically are also... Um, a mum and dad type operation that have put their house on the line. They might be a registered nurse and they tend to be in the same position as the registered charities of having older facilities uh, that require a return to actually upgrade the facilities and it's just not there at the moment. The aged care sector could collapse within the next six months without urgent intervention from the government. According to a provider in Otago, more than 1,000 beds in rest homes currently lie empty because of a lack of nurses and the costs of running aged care facilities are skyrocketing in places. This at a time when the population's ageing and the incidence of dementia is set to double from about 70,000 now to twice that in the next generation. Alzheimer's New Zealand Chief Executive Catherine Hall says in some areas people are waiting a year to be assessed by a psychogeriatrician and the wait for residential and respite care can be up to two years. It's pretty tough to try and uh, keep things afloat at the moment for many operators. For us, uh, having staff on the floor during the day is critical. I mean, we, we can't not provide a meal. We can't not provide care. We can't not provide medication. So we have to have the necessary pairs of hands and people capable of, of executing the care that's required. What, what's happened over COVID is that people's uh, visas have expired, people returning home overseas We've seen DHBs recruit from our sector. And so we are now faced across the aged care sector with a about 20% vacancy rate in the required number of registered nurses. So that is a enormous challenge and that has fed through to providers having to shut beds. The aged care sector is short of more than 1,000 nurses which has forced the closure of some rest homes and the loss of 500 aged care beds in the last six months. Shut to admissions, shut to hospital level care 
And we've now got 900 beds um, across the sector that have been directly impacted by COVID and are no longer able to take residence. And that feeds back into the DHBs because where do these folk go? There's no capacity left in the sector. Um, so they end up staying in hospital, mm-hmm. bed blocking. And the consequences of that is that if you or I have got a pre-planned hip replacement or knee joint to be done, we can't go in because there are no beds, there's no nurses, they're, they're caring for the older person who should be rightly in the aged care sector where specialty care is available. Let's talk about the nurses element of that because my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but my understanding is that the aged care sector generally recruits nurses from overseas. Why is that? What's the thinking behind that? Look, it's not an intentional um, policy at all. And and our preferred uh, option would be to take uh, new graduates from a New Zealand training nursing school. Uh, But what has happened over the last decade or so is that there's been insufficient nurses um, being trained within New Zealand, and we have been an attractive option for internationally qualified nurses. And that is something that is unlikely to change until such time as we get more numbers going into nursing schools. But there is also, and this struck me as curious, I'd like it if you could explain this to me, there, there is a disparity in pay between aged care nurses and DHB nurses, is there not? Yeah, there is. So the vast majority of registered nurses in the aged care sector, because of the pay parity issues with their DHB colleagues, actually come from overseas. And with the uh, DHBs having concluded a new pay equity-based mecca, which is still subject to ratification by the New Zealand Nurses uh, Organisation, New offers on the table for nurses in a pay round that's been ongoing for years. What it could see if it's accepted around 40,000 nurses could see as much as $15,000 more a year in their pockets. Once that is approved, we're looking at a gap between what a registered nurse can earn within a DHB and what they can earn with an aged care of between twenty dollars and $30,000 a year. Um, So we live in trepidation of that ratification because what will happen is that the 20% vacancy we've got now will just skyrocket. We have sought assurances that the government will be able to fund uh, what's known as pay parity. Um, So our sector should have funding coming into it sufficient to pay our registered nurses at the same rate that a DHB nurse gets. The health minister has indicated he is supportive of that, but the the mechanics of a bureaucracy and finding the money to do that don't give us a lot of assurance around a timescale on that. Health NZ have said that they have not been given the money for it, so any uh, move to achieve that in the sector will need uh, cabinet approval. This is very interesting. So let me just repeat some of that back to you just so that I understand that I've got that right. So DHB employed nurses who have come to an agreement, which is yet to be ratified, but is expected to be ratified by the government, will receive a quite substantial pay rise that opens up a quite a big financial gulf between DHB employed nurses and aged care employed nurses. And so it will become very appealing from a financial point of view to work for DHBs versus working in aged care. Correct. Yeah, correct. That's exactly what we're looking at. Gee, and we should say here that it's not your position that DHB nurses are being overpaid here or anything like that. No, 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 absolutely not. And I think the government has realised that we 
do work in a global market for registered nurses, which is where it's quite bizarre to hear the Prime Minister the other day indicating that they were not minded to change the residency tracking. Doctors, unions and recruitment firms are getting behind the call for nurses to be part of the new fast track for residency. Migrant nurses must be in the country for two years before they can apply for residency. However, the aged care sector, which is losing nearly half its staff each year to hospitals or overseas. So at the moment, if we do get a a nurse coming into New Zealand, one of the appealing options for an internationally qualified nurse is a path to residency. Uh, And there are some elements of the sector that once they come into New Zealand in a uh, sector which requires that special skill, uh, then they're immediately um, on the path to residency here Mm. in nursing, the two-year stand-down, which is just absurd, uh, when the entire health and disability sector is crying out for nurses. What any good government needs to be doing is looking to the future, and there's Nothing more certain than looking at your population statistics and you can forecast with a high degree of certainty where you're going to be in 10 or 15 years time uh, in terms of different age cohorts. Mm. Uh, If you look at the age of entry into age residential care, so not a a retirement village, actually into a care home, on average, it's 83 years for a man and 85 years for a woman. If you look at the forecast number of over 85-year-olds in 10, 15 years' time, uh, we're going to need another sort of 15,000 beds uh, to accommodate those folk who will need care, assuming that the current sort of take-up remains the same. And that's, unless it's a major change in in the way in which we deliver care, that's a certainty as well. So where are those beds going to come from? It's pretty clear to me uh, that we will be short of beds when I need them, and it's not something I'm particularly happy about. Now, uh, we're just wrapping up here, but you, you mentioned earlier that uh, the Aged Care Association is in negotiations with Health NZ. So, I mean, you do have a dog in this fight uh, as it's going on at the moment. I think there's mm-hmm. a big gap between uh, each of the parties at the minute, I think. Uh, the Aged Care Association, correct me if I'm wrong again, but I think the Aged Care Association is looking for a funding boost in excess of 9%. What's being offered at this stage by Health NZ, I think they, they say it's around 3%. That's a big old gap in between those numbers, and beds are already closing down. Is this something that we can expect to continue, do you think? I don't see that gap currently uh, being closed dramatically. Uh, we're hopeful of a new offer sometime uh, this week or, or next week. But the reality is uh, we won't get sufficient to send the necessary um, uh, encouragement for providers to either keep beds open if they're marginal at the moment, uh, or more importantly, from a, from a national point of view, uh, start building new capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think uh, aged care will become a, a pretty uh, scarce resource. And sadly, the people who will bear the cost of that disproportionately are those folk who arrive at their latter years without capital uh, and probably only surviving on the state pension. And they are the ones that, in particular, the charitable providers, the the, the smaller private owner operators, tend to provide care for. And unless the sector is better supported... I don't know what's going to happen to those folk because the number of beds that are available 
without a co-payment really will be very scarce. And, and where do they go? Uh, so they will probably end up um, in DHVs, which is entirely inappropriate. That's it for today. I'm Emil Donovan. The Detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by Neil Baldock and produced by Alexia Russell. Bonnie Harrison is our associate producer. And thanks to Andrew Bevan and Warwick Dunn. Matewa.